Hey, Summit, how are you? Excellent. It still sounds kind of weird to uh, hear my name and then with the word pastor and then another church besides the Summit Church on the end of it. Um, but it's good to be back, and that's actually a very good thing. So in my family, we've been talking a lot about church planning, obviously, for like the last year. So my kids are in on it, too, and um, they've done quite a bit of thinking about it themselves. So about a month ago, we were, um, we were here at the summit at the West Club campus, and uh, my son Micah, who's eight years old, was listening to Pastor J.D. preach, and he uh, tapped me, and he pulled my head down close to him, and he said, Dad, I got one tip for you about church planning. Don't preach as long as Pastor J.D. does. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes tonight. Um, but on that note, we're going to talk about suffering tonight, okay? So in the series that you've been in over the course of uh, the summer, you've been talking about homewreckers. These are not the burritos from Moe's, but they're things or attitudes that have potential to wreck your life or relationships that have potential to be broken, leaving you with a lot of pain and regret. But today, we're going to talk about what happens when your life, when my life, is already wrecked. What do you do? What do you do with your life? And then more importantly, what do you do with God? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story of two men to, um, to try to make a point to the people that are listening to him. So he tells a story of one guy who um, wanted to build a house on the beach and so he did that. It was a nice house. It had a hammock in the back so he could watch the palm trees and a three-camel garage. And he built it right on top of a rock slab. Well, another guy saw it, and he said, I'd like a house like that. So he also built a house. But instead of building his house on the rock slab, he built his house on the sand. Well, a big storm blew through. And the guy who built his house on the sand, well, he was sitting in the pile of his house because it didn't have a strong foundation. And the other guy, his house was still standing because it was built on the rock, on a firm foundation. Now, Jesus' explicit point is that only those who build their lives on the foundation of the Word of God by believing it and thereby obeying it will stand when the trials of life come. And that's very true. But there's another implicit often overlooked truth there, and that is that the storm hits them both. Christian, non-Christian, black, white, Duke, Carolina, those who have Bieber fever and those who got to hate, the good, the bad, the ugly, the pretty, the storm hits all of us. And people have made millions of dollars and written thousands of books to tell us how to avoid the storm. Stay out of debt. Know your spouse's love language. Think more about yourself. Think less about yourself. Travel more. Buy this. Grow this. Smoke this. Drink this. Do this. And the message is clear. We spend a lot of effort trying to avoid the inevitable storms. And here's the thing. A lot of people think and have this idea about God that if I just become a Christian, or even if I just become a really, really good person, that God will protect me from pain. And a lot of guys preach this way. Money 
cars, great family, health. It can all be yours if you just believe more. And if it doesn't go this way, then you must not be believing enough, so you should believe more, have more faith. The problem is that it doesn't prove to be true biblically, historically, or even in our real lives right now today. It's all over the Bible, right? Good, righteous people that suffer. Think about Moses. He's the great prophet who wrote the first five books of the Bible. He went up on a mountain and got the Ten Commandments from God himself, but he spent 40 years in the desert and never got to where he was supposed to go. Joseph, in Scripture, Joseph is a guy, not Jesus' dad, the one in the Old Testament. Joseph is a guy that never does anything wrong, but his brothers throw him in a pit, he's sold into slavery, and he's put into prison for being accused falsely of rape. Job, Job is another example. The Bible calls him blameless and upright, and he's also crazy rich, and he's got camels and sheep and donkeys and oxen, and he's crazy blessed with tons of kids. You know, that's how they calculated how rich you were and how blessed you were by God, back then, by your livestock and your children. So it kind of makes me wonder what a scene from a stereotypical hip-hop video would look like back then, right? Instead of cars on rims and barely clothed women, I guess you'd just have lots of sheep and camels with children riding on them. It'd be more of like a kind of a petting zoo feel. Anyway, Job is minding his own business. He's probably um, praying and wishing that he had a Bible to read because it hadn't been written yet. And he's just thinking about how good God is. And a servant runs up and says, hey, some raiders came in from the north and they took swords and they killed all your oxen and your donkeys. Well, then that guy, as he's reporting, is interrupted by another guy who says, um, yeah, I was standing by the sheep in the field and then the heavens opened up and fire came down and it consumed all your sheep. And now I really want some barbecue. And then before he was done, a third servant says, the Chaldeans have attacked, and they've killed your servants and all your camels. And then before he finished, a final servant runs up and says, all your kids, they were eating in their oldest brother's house. And a tornado came through and hit the house. It killed them all. They're all dead. And then you say, well, Job still had his wife, right? A pillar of support and encouragement. Well, she said, curse God and die, Job. Thanks, honey. For Job, it just kept getting worse. Well, how about the apostles? New Testament. Well, of 13 of the apostles, 12 of them were tortured and murdered. Well, that's all Bible stuff, Trev. Okay, Charles Spurgeon, he's a great preacher. Church of thousands in the 1800s. People came from all over to hear this guy preach. He had a powerful things were happening in his ministry, but he battled with severe depression. And for one stretch of several months, he couldn't even get out of bed to make it to the pulpit. Adoniram Judson was a, a great 19th century missionary, missionary to Burma. He committed his life to missions and church planning. And how'd that work for him? His first wife, Anne, had three kids. The first was born dead and nameless on the voyage to Burma. The second, Roger, lived 17 months, and the third, Maria Elizabeth, died at two years old, preceding her mother's death by six months. 
And then, while all of this is going on, Judson goes to prison where he's tortured and hears news of his father who's died. How about Jim Elliott, missionary to Ecuador, was murdered by the very people he was trying to help before he had barely even started his work. Where is the justice? I hope you're beginning to get the picture. The storm hits everybody. And it happens to you and me too. Christian or not, good or not. Five years ago, uh, my wife and I and our oldest son moved to uh, Summit from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or moved to, to RDU, and consequently to Summit. Um, we were young and up-and-comers. Um, we had a great job. We got married when we were like 11 years old. And, uh, you know, I had a really low-stress job that I was coming from that really provided for my family. We had a house. We had a yard. We had a place at everything but the white picket fence. Well, Typically, as happens when people move to seminary, we lost our financial security, we lost our nest egg, and we lost our stress-free life. I had a job that was helping us meet bills paycheck to paycheck, and I came home one day to a pink slip on the door, and that was gone, and I had no idea how we were going to pay the next set of bills. And then even after I came on staff here at the summit, I began to question my effectiveness as a leader and as a pastor as I worked my way through seminary. And then the bottom dropped out. My marriage began to crumble and tear apart at the seams. And it got so bad to a point where I didn't know if my wife and I would make it together through the next year. And then a year ago, this month, my youngest son was born, and he lived for 25 hours before he died in my arms. So over and over, my life was wrecked. And I know I'm not alone, because many of you are in similar positions. You've watched a, a parent deteriorate and die from cancer, been through a miscarriage. You've been without a job for months, and it's getting really, really scary. You've been abused by a husband or a boyfriend. Or maybe your suffering doesn't seem so dramatic to other people. You're caught in a battle with depression that you so desperately want out of, but no matter what you try, you just can't seem to shake it. Or you've had an ongoing wrestling match with God because you want to be married, but you can't find that person, and why won't God just send him or her? And in the end of all of this, we simply want to know two things. Why? And what do I do now? How do I keep going? If you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And some of the scripture that um, I referenced tonight will be on the screens behind me. Let me include a disclaimer with this message. The Bible is about God. It's not about us. So the good news is, as we read the Bible, that God made us. And so... We learn, when we learn about God, we learn something about us. So on our quest for answers to these questions about our lives, sometimes we just don't get a cut and dry pat answer. But most of the time, that's not what we need. So Paul is the guy who wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, and Paul is well acquainted with suffering. 
He's been tortured. He's been in prison. He's been falsely accused. He's been starving. He's been homeless. He's been naked. He's been shipwrecked. But he can still write like he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There's something about all these men that I find very, very interesting. None of them. Not a single one of them breathed their last breath by cursing God. All of them died as men of faith, continuing to invite others to trust Jesus and to follow him. And I don't know about you, but I want that. Though I might never experience the depth of the pain and suffering that they did, I want to know how they had the resolve to go on with their lives and to stick to their convictions. What were their convictions? Because they must have understood something about the why and about the what do I do now. Well, Paul is going to tell us right here in Corinthians. So let's read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, and that's where we're going to stay tonight. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. God, will you Make this scripture leap off the page tonight. God, will you pound the gospel into our heads and into our hearts and show us, Father, show us by the power of your Holy Spirit what you mean in these verses and what it means for our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul writes, we do not lose heart. These are the final words of this chapter. And they're a summation of everything that Paul has said just prior to this. And what he's done just prior to this is he's reminded the people of Corinth about the gospel. That Jesus lived the life that they were supposed to live, totally righteous. That died the death, they were condemned to die for their sin. And then Jesus rose out of the grave so that they could have eternal life that they didn't deserve. And then he tells them, because of that, don't lose heart. And he discloses three earth-shattering, monumental, mind-boggling truths right here. Are you ready? I don't think you are. Here's the first one, all right? The first thing Paul says in verse 16, he says, our outer nature is wasting away. Everything is coming undone. Do you guys remember the story of Adam and Eve? So at the beginning of the Bible, God creates a man and a woman, and he puts them in a perfectly peaceful garden where they can enjoy God and each other and all of God's good gifts. But even in the middle of paradise, life exactly as we all want it to be, they decide that God is holding something back from them. And so they did the one thing that God told them not to do. So in that moment, Sin, their disobedience of God's command, and their rebellion of God's love and perfect provision for them, sin ushers in death. But it's funny because Adam and Eve didn't just fall down to the ground right then. They didn't 
immediately die. They began to die. And in came pain, and in came broken hearts. And not only that, creation broke. And so earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes are all a part of creation breaking because of sin. And so as Paul says here, everything, our outer self, began to waste away. And it's almost a given. Everybody knows this, right? See, our bodies are wasting away. Your heart is like a wound-up clock that has a finite number of beats. On top of that, half the things we eat and drink are going to kill us, aren't they? Um, I'll admit it, my wife and I have become food snobs. We're those people now. We watched way too many documentaries on chicken prisons and fast food chains. But besides that, our whole family had to go on a gluten-free diet because um, my oldest son has an intolerance to it. And so it's just easier if the whole family does it. Well, um, so where that put me is I find myself one day eating sandwiches where um, the bun was made of two fried chicken breasts with like bacon in the middle. And I kind of had to switch over to brown rice with vegetables on it, which is good. I, I like it. Um, so just as I'm getting used to that diet, we, we moved to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And as a part of having a new house there, they have someone come out and test your tap water. They're also conveniently selling you something. Um, well, anyway, this lady comes in and tests our tap water. And basically, she tells me that in our tap water, we're pretty much drinking shards of glass coated in cyanide. All right? But you know what? That's where I draw the line. You can take away my fried foods, but you're not taking my free water away from me. I will continue to drink my water no matter how hard it is. By the way, Durham has great water. You guys should be thankful. All right. So our bodies are wasting away. Your physical appearance is wasting away. Some of you guys don't realize that yet, especially if you're young. You think it's going to be there forever. I have gray hairs now. But no matter how much money you put into it or how many operations you put into your face, we can see that you're old. <laughs> All right? And so, ladies, a quick tip, and heck, guys too, getting an injection or a surgery that makes you look like this, it doesn't make you look younger. It makes you look scary. And I will hide my children from you. All right? But not only that, not only those physical things, but our relationships are, are wasting away, okay? You ever notice how we have to work at keeping up our relationships? Like, I can't not talk to my wife for a month and then turn on Barry White and light some candles and flex my muscles and expect fireworks to happen. It doesn't work that way. You're not married yet and you think it does. There's a reality check on the way because... Our relationships deteriorate, deteriorate and they waste away and we have to keep them up. We have to keep some kind of content because everything is unwinding. Everything is coming undone. You ever been carrying a bunch of papers around on, uh, on a windy day and you drop them, they're all neatly collated um, but not stapled, and you drop them and then they start to fly around everywhere, and so you run to pick one up, and as you bend down, it goes away, and then you pick the other one up, and then finally you have them almost all collected, and you reach out for that last one, and it blows away, and then all the other ones fall out, and you have to start all over again. And I'm always looking for 
the guy with the camera who's videotaping that with the string pulling the paper because it's so humiliating but so hilarious if it's not happening to you. Well, this is kind of what Paul frames up. He says is happening as the outer self is wasting away. When it seems like it's right there in your grasp, your life, it slips through your hands. And you can't quite grab it. You can't quite keep up with it. So it's one sorrow and one loss after another, and everything, everything, everything is falling apart. And every society has understood that and come to grips with that idea until now. You know that we are the first culture that is surprised by death and suffering. So the problem of evil, which is the idea that God is all-powerful and yet and good, yet suffering still exists in the world, and trying to reconcile those things, it's a relatively new phenomenon. For centuries, the existence of pain in the world did not cause people to doubt God's existence or his intent. But it's interesting now, in a culture that thrives on muting pain, that we fail to understand suffering has been woven into the fabric of our lives because of sin, and everything's wasting away. 200 years ago, there was no television, no internet, no iPod to drown out the voices of pain. Now, though, we have access to thousands of news outlets where we can see pain and suffering happen in the world. At the same time, we have access to thousands of channels and websites where we can pretend like it's not happening at all. See, what we view as the status quo now, the way that we live, we think that we deserve that, but it's not what we deserve. It's grace. It's undeserved favor. And like Adam and Eve, we have taken God's good gifts and we've claimed that we're entitled to them. Well, when the bottom drops out from underneath us and we lose that status quo and we end up down here, we scream at God for not being fair. It's like when a plane crashes, one out of 100 we say, God, where are you? But we never thank him for the 99 that land safely because we think we deserve it. And the truth is that everything is wasting away, and that's exactly because of our sin and rebellion against God. That's exactly what we deserve. So every breath I take and every moment with my children and with my wife and every breeze I feel against my skin and every morning I wake up is a precious gift of God. It's not what I deserve. So the first why of suffering is because the world is coming undone thanks to sin against its creator. But, you know, Paul is not surprised by death or pain. In fact, in the midst of it, he writes that as hard as death tries, it doesn't shut him down. So how does he have that kind of resolve? Well, the answer is because he knows something. He knows that death is producing something. More specifically, he knows that death is producing life. It's the gospel pattern. As you say, what? Wait a second. That's paradoxical. How can death produce life? Well, let me ask you this. What are the movies, what are the books, what are the stories that we all love? What are they about? They're about someone, typically, in a desperate situation who's rescued by a hero at great cost to that hero. They're about good, sacrificing to overcome evil. Um, you guys remember the movie Armageddon? Anybody see that? Raise your hand if you saw that so I can get an idea. All right, yeah, most people did. About 12 years ago, 1998-ish, 
uh, Bruce Willis, Liv Tyler, and uh, Ben Affleck. So as with every movie from the summer of 1998, the plot goes a little like this. There is um, a big asteroid or meteor that's going to collide with Earth, and somebody's got to do something to stop it. Well, in Armageddon, um, the only way to stop this meteor is to land on it, to drill into it, and to put some explosives in it, and then to blow it up from the inside out. So Bruce Willis, follow me, and his team of roughneck drill experts, um, including his son-in-law, Ben Affleck, well, they go up into space to save the world. Well, it just so happens that the only way to get the explosives to detonate in the meteor is that someone is there on the meteor to push the button because the remote control did not work. So, Ben Affleck volunteers to go into the craft, headed back down to the meteor. But when he turns around to get in it, he finds that his father-in-law has taken his place, right? He's already climbed in and locked the door, sealing his fate and preserving his daughter's husband and saving the world, but it cost him his life. And so in a teary goodbye to his daughter via video, she's on earth, he says, honey, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Well, that's the gospel pattern. In life, in life, there is a gospel pattern that is all pointing and testifying to what Jesus did on the cross. And God's worked this pattern into creation. Jesus talks about it himself in John uh, chapter 12, verse 24, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Fruit comes from a living tree, right? From a living stalk. So even in a grain of wheat, life cannot be produced without death. But see, Jesus did more than just talk about the gospel pattern. Jesus is who the gospel pattern is patterned after. See, our sin did more than just cause us to get old and die. That's a physical death. That's the outer wasting away that Paul talks about here. It caused also an inner spiritual death. So when we sin just once, we become separated from God, and we're unable to know him or have any kind of relationship with him, ever. In fact, the only way, the only way that, we experience any, that we experience God in any way is by the common grace that happens to us every day, like breathing or sunshine or not dying. These are all God's grace that are meant to point us to him. But what we do deserve is God's judgment on our rebellion against him because when I choose to worship something or someone other than God, I commit high treason against the God who created everything. And so I deserve death. I deserve his judgment. I deserve his wrath. And it's a spiritual death, a separation from God forever. It's hell. But God, in his great mercy, said no. And he became a man in Jesus. And he lived a sinless life, the life that I should have lived, perfectly pleasing to his heavenly father. And then he took my place, and he took your place, and he died an ugly, brutal death on a cross at the hand of other sinners. And so he became my sin so that I could become righteous and acceptable to God. Because Jesus died the death I should have died, I can have the life that I was created to have by trusting in Jesus. 
knowing, loving, and enjoying God forever. See, Jesus established the gospel pattern when he died so I could live. And now he says to those who trust him, you don't have to be afraid anymore. He has reversed my spiritual death. And he did it by dying. And there's the gospel paradox. There's the gospel pattern. God used death to defeat death. He used the sin of those who murdered Jesus to defeat the effects of sin. He brought inner renewal from his death. Look at Romans 8, verse 35 through 37. Paul writes this again. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it's written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Do you know what it means to be more than conquerors? That's a phrase that Christians sometimes throw. We pull out of this text and, I'm more than a conqueror. Glory to God. All right? But do we know what that means? Why don't we figure that out right now? All right? So, Clearly, Paul is exhibiting the kind of resolve that we so value in men like himself and like Joseph and Job and Charles Spurgeon. He also acknowledges the gospel pattern happening in his own life from this verse in Romans 8. Because he says, for your sake, for you, for your life, we're being killed all the day long. Death in us produces life in you. For the sake of other people, in order to get this urgent, life-changing, good news about Jesus to them, he is willing to be distressed and persecuted and hungry and uncomfortable and naked or killed. But this is where he finds his joy. It's in the inner renewal that's happened to him that cannot be taken away from him. It's the same inner renewal he writes about in our text today. That's That's his encouragement. We got this bad news that the outer self is wasting away, but hold on, the inner self is being renewed. Something's changed, something's different, and I can't lose it. I'm more than a conqueror. And here's what it means to be more than a conqueror. John Piper gives a great definition of this, so I'll just quote him directly. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. And this is what God has done to death and to sin and to suffering. He has not just defeated it. He has used it for his purposes to bring about life and inner renewal. The very thing that we are fighting is the thing that God is using to bring the victory. Jesus' suffering and death brought life, so our suffering and dying will bring about life as we join in the gospel pattern that points to Jesus. Let me give you two quick ways that suffering produces life. All right? The first one is interpersonal, between people. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says, So death is at work in us, but life in you. Suffering produces life in others. 
As you see people go through difficult times in their life, as you see people go through suffering, and as you see them sacrifice for the sake of someone else, for someone else's betterment, for someone else's life, they are able to understand better how the gospel is true when they look at that. Because the more they see suffering and death producing life around them, the easier it is to believe the gospel. And here's your small group plug, all right? One of the main reasons that the church has small groups is so you experience other people sacrificing and suffering and going through pain. Yes, so you can be a comfort to them, but just as importantly, so you can witness the gospel pattern in their life. In fact, as you see others endure suffering and continue to rely on God, your faith will be challenged and your faith will be deepened. And so their pain and suffering produces life in you. It's the gospel pattern. Death produces life. This is also why as the church, we should serve those who don't believe like we do. It's not an intellectual proof that Jesus' body is not in the tomb that's going to cause them to believe. It's when you are willing to disrupt your life to allow a refugee family live with you or die to your dream of owning the largest home in the neighborhood so that you can take care of a widow or an orphan. Because when people see this kind of death producing life, the story of a God who died so that they could have life doesn't seem quite so far-fetched. And that's why I left the summit to plant a church. Sure, I could have stayed here where I loved living and had a great church family, but I knew because of the gospel pattern that new life would come in others when I let myself die to my own comfort and ease. It's the gospel pattern. That's the first way, interpersonally. The second way that we see it show up is intrapersonally, all right, within you. Suffering doesn't just produce new life around us, it produces in us. James 1-2 says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, trials strengthen in us the kind of godly character that allows us to be patient and to wait and to trust God more. Trials, difficulties, suffering give us the kind of desperation and craving for God when we come to the end of our rope and there's nowhere to turn except to say, God help, I have nothing left. When my marriage fell apart right underneath me, God beautifully restored it. And though I never would have chosen to go through that, it produced a kind of commitment to each other between my wife and I and a dependence on God in our marriage for both of us that wasn't there before. And when my son died a year ago, I never would have chosen it to be that way. Not in a million years. But it produced in our family a longing for Jesus to come back and to bring our bro baby brother back to life. And so Isaac, my youngest, he's four, he always prays, God, will you take care of Kai and bring heaven down to earth soon? Why? Because through the death of their brother, they experience the unwinding, the wasting away of life. And now they have a taste for that and they want it to be undone. They want to see their brother alive. And so they ask God to do it quickly. This is the gospel pattern. Jesus is a king, yes. God is sovereign, yes. But he first endured the suffering of the cross for our sake before he took up his crown. That brings us to the last thing Paul talks about in these verses. 
where he talks about what God will do. So the gospel's not finished yet. It doesn't end at Jesus' death. If it did, that would be a terrible, terrible story. But this is the greatest story ever told. And so it's not going to end with the hero dead and all of us still going through suffering. Jesus resurrected. He didn't stay dead. And so the rest of the good news is that not only did Jesus accomplish an inner spiritual renewal, he's going to make all things new, everything spiritual and physical. Jesus' physical body came up out of the grave at his resurrection. And the Bible says that he is the first among many brothers. That means that all those who turn from their sin and trust Jesus with their broken, ugly, messy, pain-filled lives will not simply be happy ghosts like Casper, will be whole people, resurrected, new, and alive. So now we've answered the why of suffering. Everything is wasting away because of sin. And God is using death, he's using the gospel pattern to produce life. But the final question that we asked at the beginning of this message is what do I do now? How do I go on with my life? Well, here's how. Paul knows this because he knows that life with temporary suffering better prepares us to enjoy eternal life without it. Life with temporary suffering better prepares us to enjoy eternal life without it. We're all looking for a reprieve from our suffering, right? But, you know, we settle for such cheap relief. Um, you hate work, so you live for the weekend. But then Monday rolls around again. Oops. You hate your marriage? Well, then you live for the affair until you leave your wife and realize the same things that you hated about your first wife you hate about your new one. Oops. Cheap, cheap relief from your suffering. But Jesus died so you can have ultimate, lasting freedom from pain and suffering. It starts now by giving you a purpose. And it culminates when he makes everything new. Look at this crazy statement Paul makes in verses 17 and 18, where he says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen... The things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal, temporal or transient. So there's two insane things about these verses. The first one is that Paul would ever call his, suffer, his suffering slight and momentary. He's beaten, imprisoned, deserted. This is not slight and momentary. But compared to an eternity with God where all pain is erased... And all the suffering is gone and every tear is wiped from our eyes where the dead live again and sin is no more. Paul's short encounter with pain and my short encounter with pain and your short encounter with pain is like the prick of a needle. But the other crazy statement that he makes here is when he uses the word preparing. Slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, he doesn't just say this affliction is nothing compared to what's coming, he says, actually, the suffering is preparing us for what we're going to experience. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever had a really, really terrible nightmare? Um, maybe one where your spouse dies or where your daughter is kidnapped. Well, what happens when you wake up? You reach over in the bed next to you 
and you cuddle with your spouse, right? Or you run across the hall to your daughter's bedroom and you scoop her up and you kiss her and you hold her tight and she's like, what's going on, Dad? Why all the fuss? And what you say is, okay, I've seen how it could be different. And I'm thankful that you're here. See, I love them. I love my wife and I, I love my kids before the nightmare, but not like I love them after. The joy of finding them there alive when I thought they were dead was not in spite of the nightmare, it was because of the nightmare. Right there, that's the secret. That's it. That's it. That's, that's what we're mining in these verses. That's what's coming out. It's what we started looking for from the beginning. How could all of these great people of faith, how could all of these righteous people face death and suffering and pain and not be bitter at God? But then how could they still entreat others to a life of serving him and following him? If God betrayed them, why would they ever tell someone else, yeah, follow the God that took me into this pain. Follow the God that took my kids away. Follow the God that took my wife away. Follow the God that's led me into depression. Why would they ever entreat anyone else to follow that God? Paul gives us the answer. It's because they look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, don't get confused because a lot of people read this verse and they think, well, the seen is the physical, it's the things I can touch, and the unseen is the spiritual, it's the spiritual realm. But there's a big problem if that's what's coming out of this verse. You know why? Because what would happen to the conversations that I want to have with my son? And what would happen to all of the paintings that the artist never got to paint? And what would happen to all the songs that the musician never wrote? And what would happen to all the sights that you never got to see? They'd be gone. They'd be lost forever. They're physical. And if God doesn't redeem physical, then they're gone. We've lost them. No, the scene here that Paul writes about is suffering. And the unseen is renewal. Suffering is seen now. Renewal, he says, is seen in full later. You realize what this means? It's as J.R.R. Tolkien said, all the sad things are coming untrue. When the resurrected Jesus comes back a second time, he's bringing heaven with him. And he, he will renew all of heaven and all of earth and all the suffering and all the death and all the pain will seem only like we've been awakened from a nightmare. The last time I held my youngest son in my arms, he died. The next time, he'll live. And that's what keeps me going. So maybe the child that you have with autism, you'll see them think perfectly for the first time. Maybe the relationship that's been strained with that parent, you'll embrace for the first time in years. The depression that's bogged you down for so long will be swallowed up in the beauty of God and that's what keeps me going. Knowing that the suffering will end and knowing that I'll follow Jesus in his resurrection and knowing that one day the nightmare will be over and we'll walk in a beautiful new reality. So what do you do with this? You simply pine away for Jesus to come back? Well, yes and no. See, there's no way that you can want the renewal of all things without responding to it now. The reality is, is that Romans 8.28 says, 
For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you catch that? For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. This means that for some, for those who don't love God, for those who don't put their trust in Jesus, that suffering is useless for them. It's not working together for their good. It's gratuitous, it's painful, and it has no end. There is no rescue outside of Jesus. Listen, don't waste your suffering. There's only one way to make your pain count. There's only one way for your suffering and your pain and your death to bring about new life in others. It's to believe the gospel story, to follow the gospel pattern. Believe that Jesus is the one who paid the price for your sin and suffered and died in your place so you could follow him in his resurrection. And it doesn't mean you won't hurt again. In fact, it may bring more pain and suffering in this life than you would have experienced otherwise. It did for Job, it did for Jim Elliott, and it may for you. But in Christ, there is an ultimate end to suffering as you look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. But there's no glory to look forward to if you don't first turn from your own sin, die to your own self-interest, and trust Jesus died for you. And you can today, right now. You could do it right where you are. Just pray. You don't even have to close your eyes right now. But you can tell God that you're not exactly sure what you're doing, but you know you want to trust him. Tell him you're done pushing him away. Tell him you're at the end of your rope and you don't know how to get out of the pain that you're in. Tell him that you're done worshiping other things and you want to worship him. Then tell him you trust that Jesus' death can produce life in you and he forgives you already. His son suffered so your suffering can one day end. So listen, when the offering comes around, tear off a little piece of the worship guide and let somebody know that you want to talk about your life and talk about Jesus. Or better yet, come down and see the campus pastor or talk to the person that you rode with today. Go have dinner, go have lunch and ask them about Jesus. See, for some, the pain and suffering of this life is as close to hell as we'll ever get and that's a very beautiful thing. But for others, this life is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And that is a sobering reality. That's why Charles Spurgeon kept preaching. And thousands trusted Jesus. And that's why Adoniram Judson didn't leave Burma. And nearly 4,000 churches in Myanmar trace their origin to his work. And that's why Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, went back to the people that murdered her husband and saw them trust Jesus with their lives. And that's why my family left the Planet Church. And leaving the summit has been difficult and painful at times. Battling through a torn marriage where I had nothing left to give and was desperate for God to act. It was excruciating. And kissing my son goodbye just before his final breath was heart-wrenching. But I'll still tell you today that God is good, that he loves me, and that he loves you, and he's well acquainted with pain. See, he left his heavenly home to live among us, and he watches his bride, the church, daily give herself to idolatry, and his son died too for you. So trust him. He will not disappoint you in the end. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Goodbye, Raleigh Durham. I leave you in the hands of God who's entrusted you to the Summit Church. You guys. And goodbye, Summit family. How will you use the seen to point to the unseen? How will you use your temporary suffering to show off the God who offers eternal peace? When the storm hits, and it will, will you waste it? Or will you show the others the rock that you built your life on? I love you, Summit Church. So go and die for Raleigh-Durham and for the world. You have nothing to lose. Let's pray. Father, there is no um, amount of words that I can say or length of a sermon or, or discussion that's that's going to tell someone why they are in the pattern of difficulty or suffering or pain or death that they're in. In fact, God, I still have questions about the kinds of things that I've waded through um, in the recent years of my life. But what I do know, God, is that there is an unspeakable comfort that comes from resting in the fact that knowing that You love me right now, right here, right in this second, because of what Jesus did, that you love me now and accept me now as you will for eternity. It will never change. No matter what I do, no matter how many questions I have, no matter how difficult the road gets, you're not going to stop loving me. Father, I pray that you'll give some people tonight the courage and the faith to trust Christ with their life, even when they don't understand why they're going through what they're going through. Give them the strength, give them the courage to talk to somebody, to a friend, the campus pastor. May your Holy Spirit move in the lives of people and bring people from death to life. And now I ask for this church, for the Summit Church, that you would use their suffering, that you would use their deaths to affect Raleigh-Durham with the gospel. Christ's name.